0: Welcome to episode four of the Reboot Insiders podcast. Today's episode is part two of a recent talk Jimmy had with Dr. Travis Ficklin, a professor of exercise science at Dixie State University, and Dr. Robin Lund, the pitching coach at the University of Iowa. Among other things, the three focus on injury risk, the transfer of momentum, and motor learning programs. So please enjoy Jimmy's conversation with Travis and Robin. I think, though, the question about Tommy John, I think we may be able to talk about that for a few minutes. This is like the million-dollar biomechanics question. For sure. Uh, have people been able to pinpoint why some players get Tommy John and others don't? And even more so, how much it's happening now as opposed to in the past. And I'm sure everybody on here know. I don't want to say I'm sure. Some people on here might not know what, what Tommy John refers to, so I'll tee us up real quick for what that is. So we have this ligament in our elbow, like right here, the ulnar collateral ligament, and it basically connects the forearm bone to the humerus. And there's a bunch of other stuff that that connects those things here. But when a pitcher pitches and goes into maximum shoulder rotation and then inwardly rotates the arm, that ligament experiences stress and then it tears. And Tommy John surgery is just repair is essentially just repairing that ligament. So I don't know if people, well, I'll wait to give my thoughts. I'm curious, Robin or Travis, how do you feel about how people answer the Tommy John injury? I
1: think it's multifactorial. And and I think for each guy, it's different. I think things like just mechanical efficiency, I think plays a role in it. How stressful. I know mean, some guys can throw 95 with 70 Newton meters of, you know torque mm-hmm. and other guys will throw the same speed and it'll be in you know triple digits and then I know workload can be an issue with that if guys don't ramp up properly and, and overload those tissues and things get really tired and then things aren't firing and then now the, the ligaments got to take all the load and it can be injured that way. And and I think just like performance in and of itself like harder throwers you've seen some of that work right where they compare two groups one group of pitchers that have had Tommy John and the other group that hasn't and they compare their how hard they throw and the group that was injured on average throws two to three mile an hour harder than the other group. So I think there's a lot of things that go into it and it's multifactorial. And I I hope we answered this question, but I'm not holding my breath. I think it's a tricky, I think it's a tricky question.
0: Yeah. I I think theoretically, I think theoretically we understand. Oh, sure. Mechanism. The factors, right. It's just such a hard thing to prove in a statistical sense, because even though it feels like there are a ton of Tommy John surgeries, from a statistical standpoint, it's not that big of a sample size. And also it's really hard to understand all the other variables. So generally when we're trying to do some type of statistical analysis, we need one outcome variable. Did this person get Tommy John or not? But at the same time, yes or no, yes or no over the course of their entire career or yes or no tomorrow. So first of all, like the when is a really important piece of that. And then, like Robin was talking about, there are a bunch of other factors that theoretically we believe contribute. One of them, I'm sure, I mean, just a fact of physics, you apply more force to something, it stretches more, it's more likely to break. So we apply more force to the UCL, it's more likely to break. And theoretically, people talk about that a lot. But then that doesn't account for like, how strong is your UCL? And is the strength of your UCL different from someone else's? Then we also have a bunch of muscles that cross over here how strong are your muscles compared to somebody else's how turned on are your muscles compared to somebody else's then also people don't talk about this very much but what direction is your arm accelerating in there's just so many different factors here and also the amount of time right like travis was talking about impulse right so people often when they analyze a ucl tear they just look at the peak force but if you look at a bunch of research about what causes injury it's not really peak. It is peak, but it's also the rate of the force being applied. It's the distance of the stretch. So I think like theoretically, we can point to a thousand different factors that that contribute to someone needing Tommy John. And I think theoretically, we can be very confident that those things cause Tommy John. But does that mean that we can predict who's going to have it? No, because it's really hard to measure all of those things in somebody.
2: Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. I also don't know we want to mitigate injury risk, but you got to remember that some of the things that lead to really good performance, like one of my, one of my favorite variables is rate of force production. So a very athletic, powerful person not only can generate big forces, but can do it in very short periods of time. And it's dependent upon things like muscle fiber, twitch, characteristics and so on and so forth, but also activation. I'm glad you said you know how turned on are the muscles because right. sometimes it's not a question of strength, it's a question of activation,
0: yeah, right, definitely. And
2: but that, but a really high rate of force development is also going to be associated with a high rate of loading on those viscoelastic structures, and it's the rate of loading that's you, just uh,
0: explain viscoelastic elastic structure,
2: <laughs> dang it. I thought I'd slip that one in. Yeah. So viscoelastic just means that the stiffness of the structure is dependent partially on how fast you stretch it. So if you think of silly putty, which if you stretch it really not saying that UCLs are silly putty, but if you think of silly putty and you pull it slowly, it just, it stretches. But if you pull it really fast, the tension gets so high that it just breaks. And that's a little bit like a viscoelastic structure. When you stretch a UCL really fast, that's more dangerous to it than if you put the same load on it, but apply it slowly. And so if you are a pitcher who is capable of high rates of force development, which is going to be all of the guys that Robin coaches, anybody at that level and above is going to be like that. They're also making high rates of, of loading on those structures. And so you've got those pitchers are going to have to develop tolerance for those loads, just like any other biological tissue, they can respond favorably to training loads and and become stronger But then there's some things you can't control. Like what if the cross-sectional area of mine is just smaller than it is for Robin? He and I go out and throw the same pitch, same mechanics, same everything. I rupture mine. He doesn't. That was, who's that on? Who's to blame for that? I don't think you can. It is so multifactorial. And 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 there's just so many things that are slightly outside of control. But that said, a certain amount of Robin's job and all of our jobs is trying to figure out what might mitigate that risk the best that we possibly can. But I don't think you can do it without some risk.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Like people have tended to focus on two things, I think, because they're the easiest to measure. I think people tend to focus on things that are easy to measure. People right. tend to focus on easy. I'm going to put easy in quotes, but the peak force and then the, the amount of pitches you throw in a year or the amount of innings you throw in a year. Yep. And yeah, like we just talked about, if you only try to control those two things, there's a thousand other things that you're missing. And I think also something that people have talked about is when you focus too much on, and to your point, Travis, about like things adapting and things can grow and change. If you, there's a danger in like limiting pitches and development too much. If You limit somebody too much and they don't get a chance to adapt for like newer and greater loads. Like people tend to, if they, if there's, if injuries occur, people tend to pull back, but really maybe you wanna inch forward a little bit. so You can actually create the adaptation you need because we all want starting pitchers to throw 250 innings a year. We want people to, you know, last the whole season but then we try to get them to do that by having them throw less. I don't know. I think like it's more about modulating the load than limiting it. I don't know. People tend to focus on these things that we're missing, I think, so many other things. Yeah,
1: you've got to build, we're in the middle of that right now. Like we open up in two weeks and it's a grind because mentally Mm -hmm. guys are over it. They're, they've been thrown to the hit. First of all, like we built them up in bullpens to a point where they've never thrown that many pitches before without hitters. That's hard for them to get through. Yeah. Um, they to get through it and then but you don't do it all you don't eat the set all 76 er in, in one bite you got to eat them you gotta eat, take it lots of little bites and so we add about 10 to 15 pitches per week and we tell our guys to hold everything else stable so we use the modus sleeve all of our guys use the sleeve and we use that to help us keep our workload constant six days of the week and then the seventh day week when we throw our live set that's when we add pitches and and we can monitor some of those things like acute chronic ratio and things that we don't have to get into the weeds on that because yeah. people agree with it, but it it just provides us with some, a way to get guys built up relatively safely.
0: We got a few more questions. How can you describe the difference between energy transfer versus momentum transfer? Oh, I think that we can chat about this for a few minutes. Travis, do you want to try and kick us off since this is in your wheelhouse?
2: Yeah, I love this question. Energy and momentum. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people out there that when they hear these terms energy and they hear momentum, I think they interchange them mentally. And, and that I'm just basing that on how I hear people speak. They'll talk about how they built up all those this momentum and then they transferred energy to the, that statement is true. They built up momentum and they transferred energy, but I think sometimes people are interchanging them in, in their mind. And there's important differences um, the primary
0: one. Actually, sorry sorry to interrupt, Travis, but you would you mind like taking a quick step back and saying like why we even care about analyzing this transfer?
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely. We probably all use terminology like kinetic chains and, and so on and so forth. And, and you touched on this earlier. The only source of external impulse that you have is the ground. So, What your job, if you're a pitcher, I know we just keep talking about pitching. Biomechanics is so much more, but let's talk about (laughs) pitching. You have a baseball and if you're going to throw that baseball hard, then what you're going to do is you're going to impart momentum to it. Where is that momentum going to come from? And if you want to look at it as energy, fine, then you're going to impart kinetic energy to that baseball, both rotational and linear. But I'm going to, I'll stick to momentum for this part. So where is that going to come from? Okay. What's it connected to? That's you. So it's going to come from your hand. You can back this all the way up, right? Where did your hand get its momentum? Got it from a forearm. Where did it get that? Upper arm. And we can trace it all the way through the trunk, all the way back to the ground. And the only thing that the pitcher is touching that can cause a change in momentum is the ground. And so therefore the interaction with the ground is going to generate momentum in the body at large. Okay. So if you want to just really super simplify it, you're going to take something that's very massive, which is a human body, and you're going to cause momentum in it. And momentum is mass times velocity. Let's just keep it simple like that for right now. All right. Body has a lot of mass and small velocity. If you could somehow squeeze all of that momentum into a baseball, which has a small mass, <laughs> to satisfy laws of physics, it's going to have a huge velocity. In a nutshell, that's what a pitcher's doing. The problem is, or not the problem, but the challenge, or the, yeah, we'll call it a challenge, is that the body is not rigid, it's multi-segmental, and you generate momentum at the ground, and then you somehow have to transfer that momentum through the lower extremity, through the trunk, out eventually to a pitching arm. And there's links all along the way. And those links are joints. And those are opportunities to lose momentum in that transfer. And so the more efficient you are, the better you are at taking that momentum from your body and squeezing it into the baseball, if you want to think of it that way. So that's a momentum analysis. And it's similar to an energy analysis, right? As you interact with the ground, you will cause energy in the body, energy of movement. And that energy can also be transferred and and tracked through segments of the body. So both have some, both have a lot of, both those analyses have utility in terms of tracking where the oomph that you'd started with the ground, how you got the oomph into the baseball. And so they're both good that way. The primary difference to me is whether or not one of them has direction. So momentum is what we would call a vector quantity. So it has direction. And energy is what's called a scalar quantity. It doesn't have direction. So I I know people rely on both analyses. And I'm going to say that both have a lot of utility. I really prefer the momentum analysis because of directionality.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll just, I'll piggyback on that real quick. I think energy and momentum are very related concepts. Like momentum is mass times velocity. Energy is mass times velocity squared. So they're very similar concepts, but the thing about energy that makes it a little trickier to analyze is energy has many forms. There's chemical energy, there's heat energy, there's gravitational potential energy. So if you're really trying to do a robust analysis of energy flow through the body, you really need to track the energy in all of its different forms all the way through the body, which is a really hard thing to do, given what we were discussing earlier about not really having a good way to measure what muscles are doing. Whereas momentum is really cool, and that there's only one form. It's really like momentum is a very, it's basically like a utilitarian physics concept that we generally use to describe motion in a universal way, which is awesome, which is I think why Travis and I gravitate to it so much. Um, (laughs) Gravitate. Yeah. But analyzing this flow is super important. And I don't know, Robin, do you want to specifically chat about the application of looking at the flow of momentum or looking at the flow of energy?
1: It's tougher when you're doing it with video. That's a probably I think that's somewhere down down the road in our in our uh, list of things to talk about. But it's definitely something I think about and when I'm looking at the way you guys move. But it's pretty tough with just an iPad or just an electronic camera to, to to visualize that. Which is for me the goal why we want to get our own biomechanics lab because I it's, it's quite possible we're missing stuff the way we're doing it.
0: Yeah, sure, definitely. Like, I, I think what's cool is like with momentum, like piggybacking again on what travis was saying like you can measure momentum in three dimensions right you can measure the momentum in like a ferris wheel dimension you can measure the momentum in a merry-go-round dimension one of the things that we do in our analyses is we specifically look at like in what direction are you transferring momentum with each body part so just like to give a really practical example right let's say your lead arm is moving very horizontally so that's the direction you're creating lead arm momentum. But then let's say your arm slot is like super over the top. Those directions don't interact. So this lead arm is not going to do much to help with this over the top arm slot. So really lining them up, generating momentum on a similar plane is a better way to use all the momentum that you generate, which I think dovetails into Emilio's question about how do you determine efficiency for athletes without knowing their capacities and limitations? I'll kick this one off. I think... People use the word efficiency often in a very general sense, but I think you, it almost comes down to semantics, Like, how do you want to define efficiency? I come from a mechanical engineering background and as part of my mechanical engineering background, I literally would analyze efficiency, which is all the stuff that we're talking about, which is how much momentum went into the system and then how much went out the other side and in what direction did it transfer out the other side or how much energy, you like energy is a much more common thing to analyze efficiency with, like how much energy went in one side and then how much energy got out the other side. So you can literally do that calculation, energy in versus energy out. But to Emilio's point, how do you determine efficiency for each athlete without knowing their capacities? I think like it's like a two layer thing where you can understand like, where is this energy flow or momentum flow being inhibited? But then as we're trying to dial and dig into why is that being inhibited? I think that's where you need a really good like medical assessment or strength assessment to start to get at why that inefficiency might be occurring at that specific point in the flow of energy and momentum. And I don't know, like, Robin, is that a part of your process with your players is like looking at their capacities and doing assessments?
1: When we finally, like, so the way we do our biomechanical assessment, we do qualitatively. Mm -hmm. We break the movement down into about six or seven different chunks and we make uh, shortened videos. And then we just play those on a loop and you watch that just the load, the hip load over and over, and then bang, things start popping out. And once we decide what is the one thing that we're gonna work on with a particular guy, that's when we dig into our assessment that we did with our athletic trainer and a physical therapist and just a full body looking at all the mobility issues, control issues, imbalances, we look at a strength and we've got we do our force plate stuff and all that kind of stuff. And we'll start digging in there to see if there's anything in any red flags in there that could potentially be linked to this particular yeah. movement. You know, deficiency we'll call it and then from there we just our athletic trainer and myself we just get our hands on each guy individually and just start going to work and try to see if we can figure it out at the end of the day no matter what you're going to go on a motor learning plan because you have to move you have to learn how to move differently and if that if a lack of mobility or, or a lack of whatever balance or there's some type of imbalance or something is a part of that then that's extra work on the side that's being addressed while we're trying to Get the, the this particular movement to be a little bit more stable in their uh, movement pattern.
0: Yeah, all totally makes sense. So, I, so like getting back to, I think the broader topic. I think you can analyze efficiency from a very like literal mechanical standpoint, but then efficiency in the sense of is this athlete getting the most out of their own body? I think that's where the assessments and that comes in. So you almost have two layers here.
1: Efficiency gets used on the in, in, with the arm a lot, and I use it yeah. this way too, just because it's how coaches talk. But yeah. I'm not- Appropriate, but like an efficient arm path. Okay. So what, for me, what that would mean is I got two guys that throw 90. Mm. One guy is really high stress and another guy is really low stress. I don't know if efficiency is the right way to do it, but that's how efficiency is used in the baseball world with coaches. One is that's an inefficient arm path. If it's high stress with relatively low velocity, you know, I'm not sure. Yeah.
0: Totally makes sense. Yeah. I
2: think that's a really cool practical definition. You can stick numbers on it. It's like Jimmy said, there's literally mathematical formulas for calculating it, but what good does that do anybody if you don't have some way to operationalize it?
0: Yeah. And actually, this is a little bit of a going back to momentum and energy, but something that I just thought of that I wanted to mention, because I think it's really important because we skipped over the the typical biomechanical analysis approach. And we went straight to our bread and butter, which is energy and momentum analysis. One thing I wanna point out about energy and momentum, in both equations, you have M, which is mass. And I think that is such an important thing to include in this analysis. A typical biomechanical analysis, will look at angular velocities, right? The angular velocity of the pelvis the angular velocity of the shoulders. But what's really missing is like how big are each of those things? The arm, like, and Travis, you were touching on this, but I guess I'm just like bringing it back to this. The hand can move faster just because it's smaller than the torso. So if we want to analyze what is the athlete actually doing from the torso to the hand, it helps to have them on the same scale, which means you essentially scale them by how big they are. Uh, Harold asks, I think this is a great question. Let me see if I can summarize. Coming from someone who had Endured Tommy John. I know there are things on the market that measure torque on the UCL. How do we know all torque is created equal? I think we touched on this, but I think we can answer this very specifically. I think you're asking is all torque on the UCL created equal? Like 75 Newton meters of torque measured by MODIS is for one pitcher? Is that the same as 75 Newton meters of torque? On another pitcher measuring in a lab, is that the same when their form is potentially in a different position? I think he specifically asked, "Can the UCL handle different loads with the form in different positions?" So basically, is all UCL torque created equal? I think is a good way to summarize it.
1: It's a good question. I've know of, I know, of, I know people. I've talked to a lot of pitchers, and pitchers. There's quite a few pitchers out there that have had Tommy John, and and I ask that question. I'll ask them, "Was it a fa- what were you throwing?" And it's usually a fastball or a curveball. I've it's those are the two yeah. that I don't hear. I don't hear changeups, <laughs> but I wonder when you're pronated versus mm-hmm. this, that changes the length of that flexor pronator mass. Yeah. And is it going to be as with the muscle mechanics? And if it's a little bit shorter, or a little bit longer, it's ability to, that's a great question. I'm sure it's got to be a part of the problem for sure.
0: Yeah. I think like people tend to say torque on the UCL. But yeah. what, we're really, what, what we're really saying is like torque around the elbow. We really have no idea what is experienced by the UCL, and really it's a matter of exactly what we were getting at is how are those forces distributed among all of the structures of the elbow? And, like you were saying, like the posture of the forearm, like you can even feel it changes the lengths of those muscles and changes your capacity to turn those muscles on and use those muscles. And people don't even think about it, but the UCL actually changes length, like with the position of your elbow. So the position of your elbow and the position reform can determine a bunch or can change a bunch of things about how force is distributed in your elbow. So to answer Harold's question, no, all UCL torque is not, or UCL torque is not created equal. And I will also add that this kind of gets back to what we were talking about the last reboot insiders seminar, right? Okay. Someone gives you this measurement of torque, but that's all it is a measurement. What they're not telling you is like, how did they get that measurement? So- typically you're measuring the position of something over time, right? And then you have to do a bunch of fancy math to get the acceleration of that thing. And when you do all that fancy math, you introduce a lot of noise and then you have to apply filtering. And sometimes people choose different filter parameters. Sometimes their measurement devices are different. So that's another thing where 75 Newton meters of torque measured by MODIS might not be the same as 75 Newton meters of torque measured in a lab because they're completely different measurement devices and people get those numbers in completely different ways. And unfortunately, getting at those numbers requires a lot of assumptions. So that's why I make it a really important point in the analyses we do is I I try to not compare numbers across motion capture systems, just yeah. because each measurement system has a bunch of its own assumptions.
1: And, and, I, and nobody loves the mode of sleep more than we, than I, like I love them and we use them every day. And, but I also think you gotta be, I don't think it was designed to be a tool that was to collect data like in a cross-sectional manner in a day to, to answer a question because that thing can, if it's a little bit loose, I've had the guys put them on upside down and it's all, oh, you're a submarine guy now because the data is all upside down. And, and, and if it moves even a little bit, you just got to be careful. I don't ever think that the modus sleeve was ever designed as a research grade, <laughs> right. but what it is great at, it's like counting calories, right? I mean, over weeks and weeks and weeks of and looking at patterns and, and plotting different things, I think is
0: a wonderful tool, I love it. Okay, so there are a few more questions and I think we'll go to Leslie's first because it's related to what we were just talking about. So Leslie asked, does anyone know if there is a specific point in the arm circle that correlates to the moment where the UCL fails? <laughs> That's a tough one, what do you think? When you talk to these pitchers who may have actually experienced it, can they pinpoint like where it happened? <laughs> They usually can. They just, it's, they think
1: it's right about when they were just going big effort. But I know like I did my Achilles tendon when I was in my late twenties and same thing. I just remember pushing off and going to run. I don't remember if it was when I was in the stretch when it was when the ankle was pushing down and I was stretching it, or if it was during the concentric portion of that. move. I just remember a big (laughs) boing boing, and, and so that I, I just, I've asked guys and and I haven't had, I haven't had anybody, really anybody be able to tell me to pinpoint it just only when it was high effort.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think because failing, I think that could mean like different things. Like for, I don't think for everyone, it's like a, a catastrophic rupture where it just explodes. I think a lot of times you just see like it fray over time, soreness builds up over time and all of a sudden, it's like, ah, my elbow's been hurting. My elbow's been hurting. Let's get an MRI. Oh there's a tear. So yeah, I think that's a tough one, but it's a really good question.
1: I know Harold put in the chat that he said his came when he was coming out of black external rotation.
0: Yeah. I think that's probably somewhat common given that's probably about the point where that peak force occurs, or maybe it's more to the point of where the peak rate of loading occurs. Travis's earlier point, Uh, but yeah if it's probably common Um, and and, and it's not
2: just peak it's not just rate of loading it's also what position is everything in when those things are happening because at at, at maximum external shoulder rotation the elbow is also very flexed Mm -hmm. and that's a lot more of that's a lot more exposure to that ulnar collateral
0: ligament also so all Mm -hmm. that comes into play it's really tough it's really tough yeah Uh, all right so this question is a It's a little bit of a new topic, but I think it's a really good question because I know people talk about it a lot. And I think Rob and you probably have some good insight here, but do we believe in high stress innings or pitches, maybe the workload for those being different than like an easy carefree inning? And what do you think?
1: I think if you believe that stress is stress, and I'll, I'll give you an example. We have a kid in our program right now where I could just tell something was off with him, just looking at him, you start to to know these kids like they're like your own children. You spend so much time with them. And then you you touch base with the strength coach. Hey, how was force plate data? Oh boy. Interesting. He was a little bit down today. He's an Omega wave user, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's going on? Yeah. Not looking great. And then you grab the kid and you ask him what's going on. And it's yeah. My, my aunt who I'm extremely close with is diagnosed with cancer and is not doing well. So you start digging in there and it's stress, stress, stress. So I guess to, to, to your point, it's yeah, coming into a bases loaded situation with nobody out with their best hitter up and you're coming out and you're breathing smoke out of your nose and you're throwing as hard as you can is going to be different than coming in in a clean inning in a blowout game against a, you know, a, a team in a game that doesn't matter. So I believe those that if we talk about just stress on the arm, no, it's probably the same. But just like the overall Mm -hmm. stress of the situation, absolutely, it has an accumulation over the course of the season. I believe that.
0: Yeah, and and I'll add, I think what may be a really important factor here when thinking about a high-stress inning might also be fatigue, right? Like, I think there's two, there's a lot of different versions of fatigue when you get into the, like, physiology of all of it. But, like, we have these, we have this, like, super high powered system that fatigues really quickly, right? So maybe when you come into a really intense game situation and you're super amped and all your muscles are turned on, maybe you blow out all your energy really fast and you fatigue really quickly. And then maybe those pitches are actually like, sometimes I think about it. If our muscles are at full capacity, maybe they're at full capacity to protect the ulnar collateral ligament. But if we blow out all of our energy and our muscles are fatigued, then as you get later in the inning, maybe you're actually like more of the load is being experienced by the UCL. So I think a big part of what someone might consider a high stress inning is actually fatigue. Or is this maybe the pitchers in his eighth inning of work and all of a sudden the bases are loaded and now he's already fatigued. and Now you're putting him in a high stress situation where he's trying to amp up that velocity. So now he's even increasing the force that he's, that elbow is trying to experience while he's in a fatigued state. So I think, yeah, I think there is some credence to the whole high stress anything. thing. A lot of times when people ask me about measuring workload, I think that you can try to get more and more granular. Like probably the ideal thing would be to be able to quantify, the, literally quantify the amount of fatigue and scale like your workload number by how fatigued somebody is. But I think applying a little bit more weight to a situation where you think a guy might be fatigued. I think that's, that's not a bad way of like actually not counting every single inning exactly the same. Yeah,
1: and Mike Son's work with the fatigue units that yeah. has been blended into the MODIS app mm-hmm. and all that stuff, I think yeah. is a part of that. That's right.
0: Yeah, we still got everybody on the chat and we got one more question. So I think maybe this can be the last question. And I, I think uh, it's a great question because I, I love how you framed it, Robin. And I think Art really enjoyed it too. When you were talking about like making a change with an athlete, you called it a motor learning program. Yeah, yeah. And, so- uh, maybe you can just like, Give a little bit more context for what right. you meant there?
1: The history between that was coaching my daughter when I was uh, still a professor. My daughter's a little softball player and trying to help her run faster and doing a ton of research and basically, hey, you need to do this. You need to do this a little bit better. You talk about biomechanics as the what and the why. What biomechanics never tells us is the, how do we get there, <laughs> like the roadmap to actually get somebody to change And So I started really getting into the motor learning literature because I avoided those classes like the plague when I was. <laughs> doctoral student. I never took one motor development or one motor learning class all through my master's degree and PhD. And so I was really second guessing that. But anyway, yeah, to answer Art's question, it's, I call them motor learning programs where basically it's just a really targeted approach to help guys change the way they move and lots of variability, lots of different drills. We switch things out, different queuing strategies, internal queuing, external queuing, All There'd be another whole, we could do another whole two hour talk. Well, on.
0: Stuff. Yeah yeah that's exactly what I was going to say is we can do all of the biomechanical measuring in the world yep. but unless like the athlete can apply the stuff that we're trying to do it doesn't matter and there are awesome resources for like how people learn and especially learning like complex movements versus simple movements and I do think it's really awesome that, that you think about that stuff robin because I don't think it's a skill set that a lot of coaches have, and it's but it's so important to really understand how people learn stuff. I think the most important thing for me is like when we're working on these things, it's the, the is to not
1: jump ship. Like we've all, and I did this as a young coach too. You get a kid, and you're like, "Hey, we're going to make this change," and then you're eight days into it, or maybe even two days in, or maybe even thirty minutes into it, mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, "That didn't work. Let's try this now." And then pretty soon, you, you look, you get into this at about eight different strategies later, and this kid's movement is like a Frankenstein monster of all the different things that you've thrown at him from a queuing standpoint. And everybody's frustrated. Like you think the kid's uncoachable and the kid thinks you're clueless and you're both wrong. And what, what ends up, for me anyway, for guys to make a real change, it, it, I've heard the guys at Florida Baseball Ranch talk about 21 days. And in my experience, it's more two to three months and you'll really start to see things stabilize, right? Like when they're in a game and things matter, And it's like, hey, he's doing what he worked on. To me, it takes months. And so you got to be really patient with it. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that's a a great point to end on because I was actually thinking that would be another great Reboot Insiders is actually like trying to apply this stuff. Well, yeah, we'll we'll put this one in the back pocket. But I think this was, holy crap, this was awesome. I really, amazing questions. Uh, So yeah, I think we can wrap it up there. Robin and Travis, appreciate everybody's time. Panelists, this was awesome. Thank you for all the incredible questions. And I don't know, any closing words, closing comments?
2: Just that this was awesome. I really appreciate the invitation to talk about this. I agree. Those questions were outstanding. Really fun stuff to talk about. I love admitting in, in front of a bunch of really smart people that I don't know stuff. So there's a lot <laughs> of stuff here I just didn't know. And that's really good for me. So I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, yeah. no, thank you so much for, for asking me. I really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, this is so much fun. I just wanna reiterate the collaboration aspect of this is like one of my favorite things and I think is probably the most important part of it because I can sit in my room here and think all that I want and be stuck in my own brain. But until you start to verbalize stuff and have people ask questions, you don't really learn. And it's interacting with people. There's just a lot of smart people in this world. And if you don't take advantage of it, you're an idiot. So appreciate all you guys. Thank you everybody for watching. Thank you for listening to the Reboot Insiders podcast. Be on the lookout for future episodes. And as always, feel free to reach out at insiders at rebootmotion.com or on Twitter at Reboot Motion.